Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB, aka Danielle Bezalow. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we're talking all about sex ed and politics. We hear from Senti Sojwal, Julie A. Kim, and Zoe Rodolfi Star. Senti and Julie are two of the co-founders of the Asian American Feminist Collective. Through public events and resources, the AAFC seeks to provide spaces for identity exploration, political education, community building, and advocacy in New York City. Zoe Rodolfi Star is an activist and advocate whose work focuses on sex, gender, family, and the law. As policy chair of the Sex Education Alliance of NYC and a coordinator of the statewide hashtag SexEdNowNY campaign, she advocates for better sex education policy on the local and state level. Here I am with Senti and Julie. Hi, I'm Senti Sojwal, um, along with Julie. I'm a co-founder of the Asian American Feminist Collective. Um, I'm a South Asian American first-generation immigrant, native New Yorker, and a longtime reproductive justice activist. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was so cute. Keep going. Hi, everyone. This is Julie Kim. And yes, as Senti has mentioned, I'm also one of the co-founders of the Asian American Feminist Collective. I'm also a Queens native, so I have been living in New York City since I was five. And currently, I'm the director of the Women's Caucus at the New York City Council. Other than that, um, I'd like to see myself as a writer. Yes. Amazing. Um, And I'm really glad to have you both on here. I was kind of doing some Googling and found the Asian American Feminist Collective and was just really impressed with all the work that you all were doing and everything that was going on. Um, So I would love to hear more about that and what you all do as a collective. A group of us got together, you know, Asian American feminists, activists, historians, scholars, we were also looking at the Women's March at that time as well, and we were thinking about, you know, how do we get involved in the current movement that's happening? I mean, a lot of us were in shock after the election happened, yeah. and what we were noticing was that we didn't really see too many Asian American feminists or Asian Americans really part of the conversation. Um, and then after the Women's March happened, I think there was a larger conversation on like not just thinking about you know racial justice, which is you know a huge part of what we do at the Asian American Feminist Collective, but also about like you know interrogating our own identity as Asian Americans and also as feminists mm-hmm. and how that kind of coincides. And we weren't really seeing too much conversation around that, so we decided to start organizing around Asian American feminism specifically, like actually calling that out and saying Asian American feminists come together. Um, and we did a whole series interrogating, you know, what that means, um, learning about Asian American feminist history because, you know, we weren't the first ones to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also thinking about politics and how that plays into Asian American feminism. And pretty much from what sort of began as a workshop series in the wake of the election, where, as Julia mentioned, we were just sort of doing like some community gatherings and having conversations around um history in our communities and Asian American feminists organizing in New York City today. And there was such a huge response to the events that we were throwing. They really grew in a way that was really beautiful. Um, 
and honestly overwhelming. Like we had some, we hosted a few events at NYU. We worked with MOCA um, and a few other like cultural. And what's MOCA? Um, the Museum of Chinese America. Got it. And um, we also worked with some Asian American elected officials in New York City who were able to speak about, um, you know, their roles in politics today. And so what sort of grew out of that, those informal early days of really just like community gatherings um, really became something that we wanted to sustain in a way that was more formal. Mm -hmm. And so uh, about a year ago, we decided to formally launch as a collective. Um, so our leadership committee is the two of us, Julie and I. Um, and Tiffany So, who is a multimedia journalist, she's currently at Refinery29. Um, Rachel Kuo, who is a PhD candidate at NYU, um, and Saloni Bauman, who is a PhD candidate in history at Yale. And so uh, we bring all, like the five of us, a pretty diverse set of perspectives and backgrounds. Um, I mean, even with regard to like our identities racially, sexually, um, our political identities and the work that we do um, really sort of bring a wide array of perspectives to the work that we do. But basically, over the past year, we've really been engaging in intersectional feminist politics in a few different ways, like through community building work, like even stuff as simple as like hanging out at a bar and being like, anyone can come chill with us, right. um, like meet your community. Let's hang out. What are you thinking about? What are you doing? Um, to, you know, things like panels and workshops, public education, um, touching on issues like Asian American feminist history, um, things like talking about sexuality in our communities. Um, we've done some collaborations with the APA Institute at NYU, um, with the Asian American Writers Workshop. We were a co-host of uh, the Scamming the Patriarchy Youth Summit at the New Museum this past year. We worked with Bowery Poetry Club. Um, on, a lot of partners. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's great. So, And we've been like dabbling and doing some more like arts and storytelling. Um, events and finding ways for people to also digitally engage beyond New York City. But basically, um, we try to engage in feminist politics grounded in communities, including um, East, Southeast, and South Asian Pacific Islander, multi-ethnic and diasporic Asian identities. Um, and within that, I think really wanting to center queerness, wanting to center um, people of varying socioeconomic statuses, and really sort of pushing against um, the idea that our community of Asian Americans is monolithic in any way, because I think that's how we're presented often. Um, and so we really want to showcase the diversity of our communities in the work that we do, and also like amplify um, queer voices and identities in all the work that we do. Amazing. That is so much incredible work. Thank you so much for that very deep background. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, so we, we spoke about this a little bit, but what does intersectional feminism specifically mean to both of you uh, in regard to either politics or just in general in terms of, you know, like the movement, I suppose? <laughs> They're pointing at each other to go first <laughs> for context. I mean... Intersectional feminism, it really resonated with me because when I first got into thinking about feminism, you know, I was reading Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, and that was really the first time I was like, oh, wow, I see myself reflected. And I think it was because they were touching on things, not just gender equity, like, oh, you know, not just women need to be paid equal, but also delving into race, you know, also delving into sexuality and 
history and all different types of identities. And that was the first time I actually felt included in that conversation because I, I do feel like, you know, Asian Americans and feminism, like that is something you don't really see that often. And right. that is why we need intersectional feminism so that Asian Americans see themselves as part of the feminist movement and is an active participant, active movement maker um, within that sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think that's like how I think of intersectional feminism. It's a way to include everyone. It's a way to make it more accessible for people to bring in their voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's how I view that. Yeah. Yeah. I think just like what Julie said, I think that intersectional feminism really moves beyond centering whiteness, which is what we have historically seen in the feminist movement, um, just in terms of visibility. But I want to be really clear about the fact that that's about visibility, not about the actual um, history and movement building that has happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think, you know, even as Julie has spoken about how you don't often hear the term Asian American feminist, we know that like our history um, as Asian women, as Asian people, like there is a long history, a diasporic history of um, women and femmes and queer people of our backgrounds who have like red love, red um, led revolutions and who have mm-hmm. done like really deep rooted radical community work, um, political work. And so I think that intersectional feminism to me means um, building bridges between various communities, um, decentering whiteness, and also uncovering history, right? Because we know that the way that we're taught history is often through the lens of white supremacy. Mm. Um, And it's through a lens that really centers people who are the most visible. And so when I think about intersectional feminism in terms of our work, I think it's really um, not just about building those bridges, but also about showing people, especially of our community, that we have been doing this work for a really long time. Um, Our people have been doing this work. Like, intersectional feminism actually lives within our communities and has um, for generations. And feminism is not something that was ever invented by or primarily a movement led by white women even. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a huge part of how I think about it in terms of our work that we do. Intersectional feminism is a framework first coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 which recognizes that all people have coexisting identities and that multiple systems of oppression act on these identities at the same time. Intersectional feminism recognizes that it is essential to consider how the dynamics of race, nationality, age, religion, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, immigration status, disability, and other identities interact when advocating for equality and to center the most marginalized among us. As Audre Lorde said, There's no such thing as single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. This episode is all about fighting for sexual health and related issues in local and national politics. What are ways you all can do this through the Feminist Collective? Well, I think I first want to start off by talking about... something that's been controversial, but also a hot topic of the moment, which is decriminalizing sex work. Mm. And this first came to us because, you know, as a Flushing native or Flushing and Bayside native, um, there was an incident in Flushing where a sex worker, Yang Song, like fell to her death um, while during a police raid. And so we 
first got involved because they were having a one-year memorial on trying to figure out, investigating what happened. And that was when the movement Decrim NY started happening. Um, so the Asian American Feminist Collective, we were one of the few Asian American organizations that came out. There is a lot of stigma around sex work and Absolutely. I mean, sex in general, but yeah. like sex work, it's at another level, right. you know? And so, you know, we were really happy to be able to um, support and at least lend some visibility to the issue. Um, we wrote like a statement um, around that supporting and um, really trying to support the Decrim NY organizers where... There's an organization called Red Canary um, that has been organizing massage parlor workers in Flushing. Um, So trying to amplify the work that they're doing with the Asian American Feminist Collective. I think for us too, like, you know, like obviously as New Yorkers, we're super invested in um, progressive policy and legislation in Mm -hmm. our city. Um, Julie and I are both native New Yorkers. And so I think that also a big part of what we want to do is really push back against the idea that New York is super progressive. It's Mm, not. Interesting. Um, I don't think that our sex education is where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that it's as inclusive as it needs to be. I don't think that it really centers um, queer sexuality, gender identity, um, or conversations about consent and healthy relationships in the way that it should. Um, I know that for me, my sex ed going to like a pretty progressive, um, well-known public high school in New York, like I didn't get great sex ed, but I got it. Um, and and I'm, we're supposed to be even grateful for Mm -hmm, that. Right. mm -hmm. But it's not enough. And so Mm -hmm. I think that for our work too, as political organizers, like I'm a huge proponent of DIY sex ed. And I think that's a lot of the work that we have to do within our communities and with our collective. And especially like speaking to varying issues around sexuality, sexual identity, sexual health, um, from the perspective of our communities and the backgrounds that we've all grown up with. I think for all of us, you know, like I don't think any of us really grew up, at least amongst our leadership committee and for a lot of our community, um, even the most progressive among us, like had to do so much unlearning to Mm -hmm. even be able to think about ourselves as sexual beings. Most of us grew up in homes where sexuality was not spoken about. Um, I grew up in a really religious household, um, so I didn't even really get any sex ed from my parents, even though like... You know, I grew up in Manhattan, um, and so... Which is common, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think across the board. And so um, one of my favorite events that we did last year was on around Valentine's Day. We held a sexuality talk circle, um, which was open to women, femmes, and non-binary people who identify as Asian American um, for us to really have a sort of just like a community gathering that was sort of like loosely... Um, that we led just sort of, we had a bunch of questions. We put people into small groups to be able to really talk about things like, um, what are your desires and how do you pursue them or uncover them? How, Mm. what have you had to unlearn in your life to be able to, um, pursue your own pleasure? What was the sex ed that you had or didn't have? Um, what do you want to pass on to your own kids or like forthcoming generations that you weren't able to have? And also like, what do you, what are, what is your lived experience of the intersection of navigating your sexuality as an Asian American, um, as an Asian American femme, woman, um, non-binary, gender fluid person. And 
I think that was one of our most successful events. It was like really intimate and I think... And what was for, that called again? It was our sexuality talk circle. Okay. Um, and so, and for so many people that were there that night, they were like, this is the first time I've ever had um, a conversation like this among other Asian Americans. Um, I mean, also just like, there's very little space to even talk about sexuality in general. Yeah. You know, it's like, where do you ever even talk to anyone or a group of people about sex, sexuality, like thinking about your desires? There's really no space. It's like, you're not really doing that at work. You probably, you know, it's it, there just isn't a space for that in general. Yeah. Well, yeah. with your friends, right? With yeah. like a group of your friends, but it's mm-hmm, very totally. informal, dependent mm-hmm. on the friend group, depending on where you are in the world. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of norms that even amongst, you know, friend groups that's Mm -hmm. not normal or common. And I think, too, like, we really see, um, like, dominant cultural conversations around sexual liberation, I think, really being whitewashed. Um, And so, you know, I'm Indian, so I'm here to be, like, our people wrote the Kama Sutra and we taught you all how to fuck. So, (laughs) you know, I just think there's also this whole thing, again, of, like, we also want to push back against the narrative that, like, Asian women are like submissive or Mm. that we're, um, I don't know. I think there are a lot of like stereotypes associated with, um, Asian sexuality and submission. Um, and I think we also really seek to like deconstruct a lot of those narratives and really sort of allow space for people in our community to be able to like take ownership of their own sexuality. And we, uh, we strive to create avenues for that to happen, um, whether it be through things like an event like that where you can just have that kind of conversation for the first time um, or through public education or through political organizing. I mean, Tiffany is not here, but Tiffany So, our other uh, co-founder of AFC, did an article on Asian dominatrixes. Mm. And that was extremely was awesome, awesome and interesting awesome. because, you know, that's definitely not a narrative you hear at all. And hearing their journey, um, one of the uh, dominatrixes, uh, their name is Yin, Yin Kwan, and they just came, they came out with a documentary. I don't know if it's a documentary or a film, but it's like called Mercy Mistress. And Yin was also a part of the rally, um, organizing around decrim. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of that is, is intersect, like it's, it intersects with each other. It's Mm -hmm. not just like, okay, you know, your activist life is divorced from, you know, your normal life. Like, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's, it's so enmeshed, you know, with each other. So. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the storytelling series and why you all think storytelling is important for political activism? Yeah, so the storytelling series really sort of came out of a few different desires. I think one was that we wanted to be able to have ways for people outside of New York City to get involved um, in the work that we're doing because we had seen such a response from people. Um, So I think one thing was that we really wanted to amplify and uplift the stories of our communities that weren't like typically what you would see. Um, We also wanted to, again, sort of like show the wide breadth and diversity of experiences within Asian America. And I think we also wanted to sort of break this 
like some barriers around like how hard it is to get your work published and um, it's very hierarchical and it's about who you know and whatever and for us we were very much like we don't really give a fuck if you've never published anything before um, or if like you know you're a New York Times editor like we want to we think that there are so many stories that are worthy of being told um, and so we have designed our storytelling series around a few different themes um, I'm sorry, first... can you define it first? What is it? Yeah, sure. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Defining the storytelling series? Yeah, yeah, like what, what it, it is. Like the first times. Oh, the first yeah. times storytelling series. I mean, it's really just, we publish uh, poems, we publish stories, like we, we publish first-person narratives. Um, and the first theme of yeah. the first series that we did was, was called First Times. So yes. the, theme, uh, okay. the theme was like your first time and you can interpret that however you want to. Mm, so it. we had like, stories about like the first time someone was ever told to like go back to their country or uh, the first time someone had sex or the first time someone ever thought about themselves as a feminist mm -hmm, or like so it. we've been sort of like defining our themes fairly loosely mm -hmm. and then um, on, putting on out, purpose yeah and then putting out a call for submissions and then just sort of seeing what we get um and we have our second one coming up our deadline is september, september 1st. 1st Ooh, yeah, yeah so if one. you're listening and want to submit <laughs> yeah yeah the topic for this submission is called real imagine Real imagined. Real imagined. Real, Real imagined. Yeah. And this oh, that. yeah, and this came out of a conference that we were at um, at the Association for Asian American Studies. We did a workshop on dreaming of a feminist future. Like what does it look like? you know, to, if we could, you know, imagine what this utopia, feminist utopia would look like, what would it be for you? Mm -hmm. um, but also grounding it in reality, because we don't want it to be separate from, you know, what what's going on now. So how does that mm. kind of relate? So that can be interpreted in so many different ways, right. um, but it'll be interesting to see what we get. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we really believe that storytelling is a, a really important tool for political activism. Um, I think that like owning our narratives and telling our own stories at a time when a lot of our stories are invisibilized is so important. Um, I think that storytelling like changes people's minds. Storytelling um, like allows people to think about things that they've never thought about before. It like if you're someone who has never even engaged with feminist politics or ideas but you're able to hear like a personal story from someone for whom like that has been a defining part of their life in some way or if they're able to share a story um, that's impactful like your entire perspective on a social issue could change um, and so totally. I think that like as for marginalized communities especially like storytelling is so important and it's we really see that as like if we are doing the work of community leadership like we really see that as an incredibly important part of the work that we do and so along with um like our digital storytelling project that we publish through our website um we also do a couple of different storytelling projects um like micro stories kind of on our instagram so one of my favorite series that we do is um the hashtag is this is Asian America. Um, just again, sort of like pushing back against the narrative that our community is a monolith. Um, we 
So we use that hashtag too. We have people submit us like stories um, of their families, either like coming to America or mm. um, like family histories um, from like country of origin or like all kinds of shit. And so, and we like publish people's like old photos um, and, you know, the story of their family or their experience that they want to share. So, you know, we have stories about people's parents who are like Taiwanese boat refugees. And like, I told the story of my parents who um, are Indian Americans who came to the United States thinking that they were going to stay for like a year while my dad was in grad school, but they ended up like building this life in New York and moving so far away from anyone they'd ever met. And mm. like, we really sort of use that as a platform to also be able to show people who have maybe ever felt like their experience um, as an Asian American was somehow like singular or like that they were like the only one in their community or town or something that like had this experience or ever had and it like felt an experience of cultural dislocation or like they, you know, I think the stereotype is like belonged in two worlds or whatever. And it's like, we do use it too much, but it is a real, it's a reality for a mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of immigrant kids. And so, um, yeah, we have a couple of other like sort of smaller storytelling projects like that on Instagram that we do because yeah, again, we believe that it's a really important tool for, um, collective liberation. I mean, I love this is Asian America because history is so important mm -hmm. and it, I think for at least in my family history I feel like when we think about history it's like oh you have to be prominent you know or mm. like you have to have this success story you know right. like you know it's like you don't really see just the stories of every day mm -hmm. you know everyone's had everyone does have a history and yeah. that's that's been really cool to see just like people telling their own history, asking their parents, like, oh, so what is our history? Like, I feel like I don't even, you know, I didn't, like, my parents didn't really talk much about my, like, our history, because they probably didn't think that it was important. Right. You know, they didn't think that, like, it was worthy of, like, retelling. So, you know, reclaiming history for ourselves has been so cool. Love it. I love that. Um, okay, moving right along. So... What do you all see as the most pressing or important feminist issue in politics right now? It's a really hard question, but try to think of like one that you really want to hit on. Um, and what about issues that are important but don't really get enough attention that maybe aren't like mainstream? I think for me, uh my most important feminist issue of the moment is really protecting and expanding our access to healthcare. Mm. Um, I think sexual and reproductive healthcare and abortion rights are under attack in a way that we really have not seen in um, decades. And I know that we have obviously seen anti-reproductive and sexual health um, leadership in place before in our country, but I think it feel like right now what is happening is incredibly alarming and like the swiftness with which it's happening is incredibly alarming. And we also, I think I'm also incredibly freaked out by how much misinformation is out there. Totally. I think, um, you know, when New York state passed um, the reproductive health act this year in January, um, which brought our state law into line with Roe v. Wade and made it so that abortion access is now available in New York state. Um, 
uh, beyond 24 weeks, which before it wasn't. So again, sort of pushing back against this idea that New York is super progressive, you had a lot of people who needed to have late-term abortions who had to actually leave the state and be able to access that care. Um, but then you really sort of saw that being overtaken. The, the messaging of that was really misconstrued by Republicans to say things like, abortion up until birth. Mm. Um, and so, and you know, th there's no such thing as that. That's not real. That doesn't exist. And, and yet we're seeing this sort of play out over and over again and become a political tool of the right. And right. what's really scary is that people have no idea what um, a lot of their sexual and reproductive health and rights even are. Um, people, even people who are fairly well-educated don't have an understanding of what abortion law looks like in the United States, or they don't know where they can access their care. They don't know how much it costs. Um, and so I think that is something to me that is so, so important. And we also know that when we lose access, like it's always the most marginalized communities that are affected. Right. So we know that there's no banning abortion, there's only banning safe and legal abortion. And people who suffer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are people of color, poor people, trans people, um, people who already have limited access, and those people are only gonna suffer more. So to me, I think that's the most critical issue um, in the upcoming election. Um, and I think also that's why it's so important that we um, keep doing this work in New York because we know that more and more people are going to have to rely on us for their health care mm. um, because what's happening at the federal level is really terrifying right now. Oops. That's fine. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, you know, I, I've been marinating on this question of what is the most important issue, and I've come to the conclusion that the environment and climate change. And I've actually, you know, this is not my forte. Like, I don't actually know that much about environment, environmental policies, mm -hmm. or just really that much. Um, but this has, this is on the forefront for me. And thinking through environment and like feminism, right? Like, I mean, there is uh, ecofeminism, which, you know, I don't know too much about. It's like something. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know. The term ecofeminism is used to describe a feminist approach to understanding ecology. Ecofeminist thinkers draw on the concept of gender to theorize on the relationship between humans and the natural world. I've been thinking about my mom and just like also women like my mom who are immigrants and came over here and learning from like, you know, I've been spending more time with my mom recently and just like, you know, seeing how she naturally and just like you know, composts, you know, like she just, that's just a part of her, her practice from when she was a kid, you know, and also like thrifting, like, you know, swapping clothes, like hosting bazaar for her community, like a, you know, a bazaar for a, her community, or even just like, um, planting, like, you know, she's like, that's just a part of her, her, just her practice, you know, and like thinking about, you know, who, like thinking about and it's it, at least in the Korean community, like Korean immigrant community that I've been seeing, it, it is usually the women who are kind of taking charge on, you know, cultivating this type of practice. And I think we're seeing this now with, you know, I don't know, hipsters. I don't know. Like I, I just recently saw like someone that I know do like a composting workshop, right? Like I don't know. Like the environment is just. It is scary, and we're seeing this in New York City now. Like, there, like there's no going across, you know, going 
like there's no ignoring it anymore. Like right. it really feels so urgent and pressing for me. And yeah. I'm wondering how we can incorporate that more into our feminist politics. Like like these huge issues, like not just like, oh, this is like a women's issue. Like this is like right. a gender equity thing. This is your issue, but like environment, yeah. you know, like immigration, totally. you know, like these really big topics that aren't seen as feminist, fem feminist politics, but like in reality, it is such a big part of it. Right. Um, well, I mean, That's also like you know, talk about intersectionality. Yeah. It's like gender justice is racial justice is economic justice mm -hmm. is environmental justice. Yep. You know, it's like there none of all of these things are intertwined. And I think, you know, like to just touch on what Julie's been talking about, like I th I would really love to see more conversations about environmental justice um, mm -hmm. as and reproductive justice is so inherently linked. You know, it's like environmental degradation happens um, mostly in communities of color. Like we see that a lot in New York City, where we see that like places that have like the highest asthma rates or like mm. places. Mm -hmm. um, where you see like the most like toxic waste. It's like this all happens in um, poor communities of color. Um, and you know, we uh, in reproductive justice organizing, it's basically like the the principle that we really live and organize by is that everybody deserves the right to have children, to not have children, and to raise the children that they do have in safe and healthy communities. Mm. And that means communities that are environmentally sound, that are free of gun violence, that are communities where people can thrive in all manner um, that they should be able to and live with dignity. And um, the environment is a huge part of that. And I think also expanding our idea of what we think of as the environment, right? It's like a health well, you think and, like a tree, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, right. Like the environment. Right. But, and like, sure, it's a tree, but it's also like, it's also like what corporations have access mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. um, to your community that your local government doesn't give a shit about because it's all like poor black people. Right. So, I mean, even just the other day with Con Edison deliberately yeah, exactly. shutting off in power in, you know, Canarsie, Brownsville, yeah. like they made that decision on which community they would like to shut down power first. Right. I mean, that's only a signal of what's to come if we don't really focus on the environment. And I'm not like, I, you know, it's interesting because I really feel like I have never really thought about the environment that much. Yeah. You know, and I it's don't. It's a really great fucking thing. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. And the other thing I'm so annoyed about is like when we think about when people talk about feminism or like feminist politics or like feminist issues, I feel like people always just relegate you know, like things that, you know, people were associated with feminism, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm just like tired of that yeah. because it's like, no, we're not just talking about, you know, sex. So we're not just talking about like sex ed. We're not just talking about, you know, reproductive health. Like we're talking about like large, large issues and we should be a part of those conversations as well. Yes. You know, because feminist politics is not about the issue. It's, it's a, it's a framework. It's like a way of thinking about the right. world. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're totally right. I yeah. wanted to let her like sit for a hot sec. Um, so one more like major question that we have, mm -hmm. which is what can our listeners do to support women of color in this political climate? Whether that be, you know, doing their research on candidates or voting for a certain candidate or learning more about. Sorry, yeah, this is like. That's very right. loud. We just pause. It's okay. <laughs> it's we're in New York City, yeah. right? Fuck yeah, off. it's in New York City. Okay. All right. Um, I can sleep during this, so you know. Wow, you are trained. <laughs> um, but anyway, so you get you get what I'm saying. Like basically, mm -hmm, what can mm -hmm. people do? What kind of homework can people do? 
and especially white people, you know, including myself, I'm, I'm, I have like a complicated, you know, identity. Basically I'm half Afghani, I'm half white. Mm. My dad is an immigrant, but I still very much like am white presenting and I'm a white person. So I make it kind of a priority for me to kind of learn uh, like from women of color and what I can personally be doing. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners who identify as white are interested as well. Um, so any like tips, ideas as to how, um, basically anybody though can be supporting women of color in this political landscape. I mean, to be really political right now. Do it. <laughs> this is the time. I mean, we are coming up on 2020 and 2021. These are crucial times for elections. You know, 2020, I mean, I think we know it's presidential elections and that's really important, but also there's a lot of statewide races. But 2021, I mean, I'm working in city council now, so, you Talk know, about it's it. very interesting. So we have 51 members um, in the city council, in New York City Council, and only 12 are women. And over 37, I believe even almost 40, are going to be term limited in 2021. So that means we're going to have an entirely new city council. Wow. And this is an opportunity for real to really, 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 really change. You forgot another really. <laughs> really, 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 really. Like, seriously. <laughs> like, it's there's going to be so many elections going on in 2021. And there's gonna be so many opportunities to be involved. And that could be as easy as like donating money. Right. And in New York City for city council, if you donate a dollar, it's $8. Oh, wow. Like so, and that's really trying to make it equitable. And I commend city council for doing that. So if you sub, if you donate $10, that's $80. And is that the government that matches that? Yes, yes. Okay. public city, campaign Yeah, financing. the city government. That's really cool. That. So easily, the easiest way, donate money. Please donate money to candidates that have progressive policies. Amazing if they're women of color. Um, second, work on a campaign. And in your district, most likely there will be a race in your district because so many districts will be up for re-election. So volunteer. And then next level is like actually work on the campaign. <laughs> like, right. You know, canvas doorknock. I mean, seeing Tiffany Caban's race like that was amazing. You know, like this is an opportunity. Like so many people volunteer, like hundreds of volunteers came together to doorknock and change the status quo. I mean, if you compare Tiffany Caban and the other candidate, like the differences are so stark. And we had a real opportunity to elect somebody who's going to make a real difference and who has the same ideas, you know, progressive policies as we do. So 2020, 2021, there's going to be so many opportunities to get involved politically, and we need you for sure. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I totally echo what Julie said. I think, like, if you feel inspired by the AOCs and Tiffany Caban's um, of the world know that there are so, so, so many women of color, um, queer people of color like that who really, really need the support on the ground um, at the onset to be able to move from like a grassroots effort to a real political mobilization. Um, the reason that we don't see more of that representation has nothing to do with there not being those people out mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. Those people are very much there um, and they deserve our support. Um, I think another really important thing to do is to donate to local abortion funds. Um, 
as we're seeing um, sweeping abortion bans happen across the United States and knowing especially that people of color, poor people of color, are the ones most affected by those bans. Um, donating to a local abortion fund. Um, in New York, there's the New York Abortion Access Fund, which um, supports people um, getting their abortions, paying for them. There are other abortion funds also that will support people um, in things like finding housing and transportation if they have to travel. So really helping somebody from door to door um, from the experience of leaving their house to actually getting to a health center to getting the care to being able to have recovery afterwards. Um, you know, if we're not, again, it's like that DIY effort, right? If we're not gonna, if our um, elected leadership is not gonna stand with us and support us and our communities in the way that we need, we need to do that for each other um, until they catch up. So I think donating to abortion funds is a really critical way that that can happen. Um, again, also, I think it's really looking to grassroots small organizations that are led by people of color and women of color. Um, the the huge corporate nonprofits of the world um, are there doing very important work, but oftentimes are run by white people. Um, they're usually their boards are almost entirely white, um, and there are so many organizations out there that are doing incredible work, um, especially in New York City, um, that are run by immigrants, that are run by women of color, that are run by queer people, that are run by the people most affected by these issues, and that is really who needs your support and your dollars, and it goes much further. So I would say really do your research about where you're putting your money and try to put your money towards um, local grassroots effort and people who are really doing work on the ground. And the one last thing I would say in Please. terms of immigration is, you know, we're talking about privilege, right? Like if you are a U.S. citizen, for example, you have immense privilege. Right now there is crazy things happening <laughs> in terms of people being detained, mm -hmm. um, people literally be taken from their homes, uh, parents and children like literally being ripped apart like there's there's crazy stuff happening that is just insane to hear about mm -hmm. like just even seeing AOC tweet about her experience at one of these detainment camps and people not being able to take showers for for months or you know sleeping in the light like all this stuff and what's been really inspiring, um, there was a recent incident, I think it was in, I don't remember the state. Someone fact check that for me. It was Tennessee. Yay. All right. <laughs> um, but um, basically, like, people who are U.S. citizens making a human chain around somebody who was trying to be detained and, you know, putting your body on the line like that, I mean, even... Um, there's been a lot of instances of allies um, with privilege, with um, U.S. citizenship, because they know that there's, you know, you're not going to be detained. So, mm -hmm. like, putting themselves out there to support these people, like, that's been so inspiring mm -hmm. to me. So totally. I think that's, like, at least being informed of rights, like, at least being informed of, like, what what should I do if, like, I see someone, you know, if, if I see an ICE officer coming to, like, ask everyone, are you a U.S. citizen? Like, knowing your rights, like, knowing that you don't have to answer those questions and, like, speaking out for someone if you see that they are being questioned, right? Like, I don't know, thinking a lot about, you know, our privilege as U.S. citizens and what can, how can we leverage that and utilize that for people has been something on my mind. 
So if people want to like keep up with the collective, what uh, what can they do? Where do they go? I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, it came right um, from the noggin. So in September uh, 2019, we're going to be throwing our first birthday party, um, which we're really excited about. It's going to be just like a celebration of our work over the past year. Um, but a great way to, so that's our like sort of next big upcoming event. But again, we sort of like monthly tend to have um, community building events, panels, workshops, all kinds of ways for people to get involved and we have a lot of amazing community partners that we work with um, and our website is asianamfeminism.org um, which will have all of our information about our resources our upcoming events um, Instagram is a great way to keep in touch with us and also submit to some of those like micro storytelling projects that we talked about so on Instagram we are at aafc.nyc on Twitter we're at AAF Collective. Um, and again, our submission deadline for our next digital storytelling series is September 1st. The theme is Real Imagined, um, and we really hope everyone submits. So, yeah, please stay in touch with us. We have a lot going on. Yay. Thank you so much Yay. for having us. Thank of course. You. Thank you for being here. Longtime listeners will know that here at Sex Ed with DB, we love lube. But here's the thing. Not all painful sex can be solved with lube. Often the pain comes from overly tight vaginal muscles, like trying to get a champagne cork back into the bottle. Has this ever happened to you? Luckily, there's a new product out there that can help when lube is not enough. Say hi to Millie. Millie is the gentlest, most recommended dilator for people with vaginas who experience pain during intercourse. Millie's gradual dilator technology allows you to be in control and take back control of your sex life. Learn more at millimedical.com. My name is Zoe Verdolfi Star. My pronouns are she and her. I am currently a rising second year law student at NYU School of Law. I went to Columbia for my undergrad. Um, I grew up in California in the Bay Area. And my title um, in this space and setting is the policy chair of the Sexuality Education Alliance of New York City. Wow, that's something. That's Lothful. a big title. <laughs> um, that's really cool. Um, and of course, this episode is all about, it's kind of like sex ed 2020. It's like talking about the 2020 election and hopefully not only, you know, presidency, but also kind of local politics and mm -hmm. kind of inform folks about who out there, out of the candidates, like care about sex education that, that everyone should know about. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. So I guess my first question is, how did you come to activism? I, I came to activism from a really personal place. I grew up with two moms, and I'm a queer woman myself, so my like most personal relationships, my most intimate choices and experience have always been sort of entangled with the law and public policy and social controversies and political battles. And so it has always been sort of a part of my consciousness that humans exist in these complex spaces. And um, I've sort of always been required to take action in order to live like freely and fully in the world the way that I want to. So um, it's always been a part of my life. At a very young age, I worked for the Obama campaign um, and was a peer educator with Planned Parenthood as a freshman in high school. I guess I would have been a sophomore in high school at that point. 
um, and have continued with activism, and it's now become my professional life, which right. is really exciting. It's That's, pretty amazing. And you might, you're going to get that. paid for it, which is cool. I mean, someday, hopefully. One day, you know. Right now, we're <laughs> racking up those law school loans, yeah, but yeah, eventually. Yeah, we're going in the opposite direction, but someday. Gotcha. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that you're saying that it was kind of ingrained in, like, your very existence. Ingrained in, in my sense of self, but also required of me from, like, the youngest age I, I can remember. Right. Like, it wasn't necessarily a choice. No. It was no. kind of something you had to do. No. Although I have now chosen to do it right, right, right. every waking moment. <laughs> right. Um, awesome. And why are you passionate specifically about sex education? I think sex education really, truly, like I believe this. I deeply believe this. This isn't a sound bite. This isn't like a pitch to support the legislation, although it's a great reason to support the legislation I've been working on. But I, I like truly believe in my soul that comprehensive sex education can change the way that our entire society addresses and views gender dynamics, sexual health, the way that we think about creating and building families, the way that we empower people to make those choices, the way that we are able to continue pursuing work and school regardless of our gender or our sexuality or our socioeconomic status. Um, I think it can help address the epidemic levels of gender violence and intimate partner violence in this country. I think it can help fix bullying. I think it can help us learn how to have healthier, intimate relationships and improve you know, young people's social and emotional skills. I, I really think that sex ed can do those things. Um, before I was focused primarily on sex education, I was doing, I was deeply involved in work around ending gender violence in schools. And I worked with so many students, myself included, who had experienced gender violence, and it was overwhelming. Both the prevalence of the problem, the lack of really any effective legal remedies, like every option that people might have to pursue recourse, to pursue what they believe, what justice might feel like for them, is so deeply flawed and it began to feel very hopeless. And I also, you know, in working very closely with people and exploring their cases and figuring out how to help them pursue whatever option they were interested in, um, came to know the identities of the people who'd caused them that harm. And especially when I was an undergrad and it was all happening on our campus, I was walking around every day in classes, in dining halls, in parties with people who I knew had done horrible things to people I cared about. Mm. And it was really hard to live with that. Um, it really Without took, seeing those consequences. Without seeing any consequences, without seeing any remorse, well, without seeing consequences for the people who perpetrated and, it, and being very intimately aware of the consequences for the people who'd experienced that harm. Mm -hmm. And also in some cases seeing real gaps in understanding between the two people of what they really thought had happened and feeling like there was no system for responding to it, but in some cases, not in all cases, feeling like if people had a different understanding about coercion, about communication, about the role of alcohol, about the, the impacts, like what the actual impact of coercion can be on a person, um, it could have looked really different for both of those people. And there could be a different way that we learn to talk and think about sex and sexuality and sexual partnership and what it means to engage in that with someone else. Um, and I began working on sex education as sort of a corollary to that work. I testified, I think my first 
sort of step into the space was testifying at a city council hearing here in New York uh, around legislation that they were considering, around sex ed legislation that they were considering. And as I wrote my testimony, I had one of those experiences, like, have you ever applied for a job? And you're like, I would be great because X, Y, Z, and then you convince yourself so thoroughly that you're the perfect person for the job. Oh, for sure. I had that exact experience when I was writing this testimony. I was like, sex education could really be a useful tool in responding to, and it's not that that had never occurred to me. You know, we did, um, we passed a bill in New York State just before that that required prevention education in all New York colleges. which is fantastic, and and did other things similar to that in other states, and tried at the federal level, unsuccessful wow. to date. But um, you know, it's not that that had never occurred to me. But as I was writing this testimony, I had this experience where I just re- it just clicked. Like this could actually change things, and I think I need a break from doing like response to gender violence work. Right. Um, Let's work on prevention. Yeah, I needed to feel more hopeful, and I really did. You know, I, I realized that this this really could be a mechanism for working on that, um, and so I I joined the coalition working for that legislation, and and my work there has continued to expand and, and grow in the years since. Incredible, love it, so Thank much you. good stuff. Um, cool. So our next kind of segue is about the Sexuality Education Alliance of NYC. So we want to talk about the the bill that you're working on right now. Can you mm-hmm. kind of break it down? Why why do we need it? What does it say? Where are you in the process right now? Mm-hmm. So there is a city, there are two city bills and a state bill um, in, in the mix right now. The city bills are, um, so it's interesting. New York City, the city legislative body doesn't control this question. So they can do oversight work um, and they can pass re- resolutions, which are like largely symbolic things like we believe this should or should not happen, mm-hmm. um, which can be helpful sort of as a political statement, uh, but don't have any like real authority in and of themselves. Um, so there's a resolution that we are hoping to see passed soon that would call on the Department of Education of the city of New York to implement the task force recommendations. There was a task force established in, I think, 2015 um, to study sexual health education in New York City. They issued a report. The mayor has been sitting on that report for a very long time now, has implemented, as far as I can tell, nothing concretely, although the Department of Education did invest um, a substantial amount of money recently in health education broadly, but not necessarily sex education specifically, Mm -hmm. although they've suggested to us that that may be happening. We don't have any real confirmation of that. So the task force recommendations include lots of fantastic um, provisions, including a mandate for comprehensive K through 12 sex education in all public schools, which would be phenomenal. Um, And that's just in New York City. That would be New York City. Correct. Uh, And again, it's a resolution. So it would be the city council saying, we really think this should happen. You guys get it together. Right. And then there is another bill that would expand the reporting requirements at the city level for schools that, um, so essentially they are currently required to report on the health education uh, that they're providing. So whether they're not, whether or not they're meeting the health education mandates okay. currently imposed by state law. And the last report um, indicated that something like 40% of schools were out of compliance which is massive. Yeah. And that, that, so 40% of schools are not in compliance, 
with health education, which means they're definitely not in compliance with sex education. Right. And of the 60 or so percent of schools that self-reported they're in compliance with health education, we don't know how many of those are actually offering sex education. Right. So Much smaller percentage. Probably. But we don't know. Right. And we need to know these things in order to design really effective legislative solutions and also to empower parents and students to take responsibility and take action to make sure they and their children are getting the sex education they need and in New York City to which they're legally entitled. Right. So... They, um, there's a bill in the city council that we've been drafting that we've been working closely with legislators on that would require reporting on sex education specifically, Mm -hmm. which would be fantastic. Uh, But again, the health education compliance reporting already happens. That's a bill that we passed 2015, maybe 2016, um, which was useful, but we've realized that hiding things behind health education really obscures what's happening with sex education specifically. And they're different. They're both important. Uh, but it's much easier to talk about nutrition than it is to talk about condoms totally. um, or abuse. And so we want to make sure that, that they're all happening. Um, and so those are the city-level bills. Currently, New York State has a health education mandate. It mandates one semester of health education in middle school and another in high school. And New York City has not really a mandate, but a statement from a chancellor, which is been viewed as binding, but also most schools are probably not in compliance with, that says, you know that semester of health education, it has to include sex education. Okay. So there is a a requirement of sorts, but it is relatively informal and most schools do not comply with it, we think, except that we don't have the data to support that. Right. Uh, At the state level, there is no sex education mandate. And people are often surprised to hear that. I think a lot of parents in New York and young people in New York believe that they, there is a legal requirement to provide sex education in this state, mm-hmm. but there is absolutely none. And it is a shocking to me as yeah. it is to the people um, who are more like directly involved in, in schools today, but there's no mandate. As of August 1st, 2019, according to the Guttmacher Institute, only 24 states and the District of Columbia mandate sex education. And so what the state bill would do is create a mandate that public schools must offer sexuality education, um, comprehensive sex education for all grades K through 12. It must be age appropriate, medically accurate, um, and it would not prescribe a specific curriculum. What it would do, and this is in line uh, with how other educational requirements are sort of created under state law. So it would preserve what's called local control in which learning standards are set by the state government and then local districts decide what curriculum they're going to use to to achieve those learning standards. Okay. It was important to us that we continue to work within the existing framework of education law, both so that it is realistic for schools to be implementing this Mm -hmm. and respectful of like the important regional differences that exist across New York state. There are different kinds of things and different ways of teaching and learning that make more sense in different communities. And we're really not best positioned to know those things. And certainly the state legislature as a whole is not either. Totally. So preserving local control was important and I think is uh, a unique and important facet of this bill. Um, Another thing that the bill does is also embed a reporting requirement like the one that we're pushing for at the city level, which would be fantastic. Again, it would allow 
policymakers to understand how this bill is and is not being complied with and consider um, potential accountability options for schools or districts that are refusing to comply or failing to comply or potentially consider financial investments to support schools who are unable to comply because of resource constraints, mm-hmm. um, if that is the case. It would also allow, again, parents and students to take action and take responsibility for what's happening in their communities and say, hey, we know this is not happening. That's not acceptable. We need this education. We want this education. Our children need this education. We want our children to be getting this education. Right. Somebody needs to do something about this. Yeah. And having, you know, being equipped with that data would allow people to be really um, taking action in their own communities, mm-hmm. which would be incredible. Yeah. And also... Again, it makes so much more sense to have the people in a place who are directly impacted by this issue and who know the ins and outs of their community and what their community needs, um, being able to equip them with information about how to, um, about what's happening so that they can figure out how they want to respond. So this bill requires comprehensive sexuality education and offers some standards for what comprehensive sexuality education means. Mm -hmm. In our bill, it must be medically accurate. It must be age appropriate, which is vital. You know, what you're going to teach a kindergartner about bodily autonomy is very different from what you're going to teach an 11th grader about navigating consent in intimate relationships. And so embedding in there that it's age appropriate makes, uh, makes a big difference. Um, it requires discussion around physical and mental and emotional and social dimensions of human sexuality. Um, it has to be trauma responsive and culturally appropriate, which is crucial given the rates of, again, gender and sexual violence uh, among students and the important differences that many cultures and backgrounds and belief systems bring with respect to understanding uh, sexual intimacy and intimate relationships. Um, it also requires it to include students of all sexual orientations and gender identities, not as a supplement or a secondary lesson. There's not like the LGBTQ day. Right. Instead, it must be integrated in every aspect of the curriculum, which is vital, um, not just because it will equip LGBTQ folks, young people, with information that they need and not stigmatize them, um, but it also helps normalize those experiences and those identities and in that way can help address um, stigma and bias and bullying against those young folks. It talks about the relationship between substance use and consent and sexuality, which is crucial. You know, when I was teaching um, trainings around consent and gender violence in schools, every single group of students would ask me about alcohol. And it, like, children are hungry for this information and right. teaching them about it at a younger age, hopefully before they're really engaging in substance use, could be really, really valuable. Um, It requires schools teach about the relationship between technology and consent and privacy and sexuality. You know, there are legal implications of that, but there are also evolving social standards and privacy considerations that young people should be aware of and should be thinking about and should be really equipped to navigate carefully and thoughtfully um, these days. And it requires education and information around consent, bodily autonomy, and healthy relationships to help address gender violence among young people and hopefully future generations of adults. Oh, what a comprehensive bill this is. Truly. We worked really, really hard on this. It's really good. Thank you. So where where are we at in terms of like people voting on this or it being adapted or mm-hmm. kind of changed in order for people to accept mm-hmm. it on the other side? Or where are we at with that? Yes. We are, so the bill has been introduced 
It has 40 co-sponsors in the New York State Assembly and 19 in the Senate. That's a lot, which is really encouraging, but it could also be significantly more. Um, So the legislature is currently not in session. They're taking some summer vacation. (laughs) Happy for them. Um, So we're spending this summer doing some education for the public, education for lawmakers, and really trying to develop more support um, for this bill and get more people to sign on once it is in action again when session resumes. We are optimistic. We think we can pass this in the next legislative session. It will require work. It will require support from communities. It will require support from parents. We have lots of parents involved in our coalition, um, but we need you know lots and lots more people to chime in um, and talk about why this would be valuable for them and for their families. It requires support from students. Again, we have young folks involved in our coalition. We have students um, who are part of our work, you know, who travel to us with Albany and who lobby and who tell their stories and who are just fantastic. Um, but you know, it's going to require everybody to really think about how it would impact them and to to speak out about that. Um, and it'll require some strategic advocacy work in Albany, which we are on top of, and we are <laughs> getting busy this summer. So we're feeling good about its prospects. And um, you know, one thing that I think is great is we have co-sponsors and sponsors from the bill that represent all the many of the diverse regions of New York. It's not just a New York City-led bill. Sometimes mm-hmm. bills in Albany are criticized for being like downstate focused. Right. Um, and but this would it that. apply to everywhere in New York Absolutely. City, including New York City? Absolutely. Amazing. It would apply to the entire state, every public and charter school within the state. Um, and I think the sponsors and the co-sponsors of that bill represent represent that. And is it still? Only for one semester in middle and one semester in higher. No, what K the, through twelve. The whole so, every year. Every year. Wow, you're really going We're for it. We're going for it, <laughs> but it's so important. You know, research indicates that one-off individual lessons or like two weeks right. over the course of three years is it's that's right. It's just not effective. It doesn't do the hard work of changing people's norms and values, of helping them develop skills, of helping them really become comfortable talking about things that are so stigmatized, can be taboo, and can frankly be a little awkward, especially right. if you're 14. Right. You know, these things are complicated and they build upon each other. And so teaching a, a small child about bodily autonomy at a young age helps you build on those lessons at a later age and talk about consent and coercion and mm-hmm. respect and empathy right. and conflict resolution in fourth grade helps talk about healthy relationship behaviors. It builds on each other. Exactly. It's crucial. It's crucial that it is K through 12 and that it's sequential, that there is like a, a plan in place where schools are given guidance about how to help that content build upon the prior years. Totally. Well, yeah, please let me and the listeners know how we can support this and how we can kind of share with people about the bill when it's time to vote. Like, what can we do? You know, like, please, we'll, we'll chat. We'll chat. And Absolutely. We'll, we'll post some stuff to our website Thank and you. social media. We love to have stuff posted. <laughs> yep. That's what we'll do. Um, okay. Awesome. So transitioning now a little bit to the 2020 election. So we mm-hmm. kind of want to hit on how how you see sex ed as an issue for this election in terms of are there any politicians or candidates running who you would recommend looking into and potentially even supporting because of their positive and active stance on fighting for sex education? Mm-hmm. I 
have been surprised at how little, if at all, any candidate has really talked about sex education explicitly and enthusiastically as a campaign platform point. You know, I see it really as an untapped opportunity for these candidates. I think the first one who does it will see a real surge in the polls, and, and here's why. The movement against campus gender violence, Me Too, the Women's March, the toppling of the, a series of powerful men for sex abuse allegations is momentous. There is so much power behind that movement, and I think it really reflects a deep anger, a deep sense of resistance, a deep feeling among women and all people who are impacted by gender violence that this is just unacceptable and cannot go on. Mm -hmm. Not to say that that hasn't been true for a very long time, but I think there is public attention on that issue in a way that there hasn't been before. And there are people coming forward to talk about their experiences in a way that also um, is relatively new. Mm -hmm. And sex education is a concrete and optimistic and evidence-based way that candidates could be talking about a way to solve that problem. Totally. Would it end it entirely? No. Not every person who perpetrates gender violence you know, will cease doing so because they learn about consent and healthy relationships. Right. But some will. I, I believe that, and, and research supports it. So the fact that presidential candidates are talking about gender violence, but failing to talk about sex ed is a real missed opportunity, in my opinion. And I would love to see more presidential candidates get up on the stage in a debate and in response to a question about, you know, Epstein, the allegations against uh, Mr. Epstein, say what we really need is not just to remove these powerful men from the positions that they have used in order to abuse people, but to educate more young people about sex, sexual health, um, sexuality, and communication, and and all of these different dimensions of the human experience that really affect the way that we move through the world and and engage ourselves in in intimate and sexual relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, and maybe, like, we'll see more. Like, who knows? Maybe it's just the beginning. I hope so. I hope so, too. If you're listening, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pay attention out there. Um... (laughs) And also, there are so many candidates out there, mm-hmm. obviously. Everyone's calling the Democrats the, the clown car kind of situation <laughs> mm-hmm. where there are 20 people and mm-hmm. no one really cares or knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of people who feel similarly to me where I'm just kind of like confused and like not really sure in terms of who is saying what and what it means. Right. It all kind of feels like a mishmash. Right. And while I follow all the Instagram accounts and try to keep up and try to read, I think it's it's really challenging um, to really know, you know, if there's one or a few, and not just for president, right? Like right. locally, what's going on here in like New York City specifically? Uh, That's an interesting question. I find at the national level, so on this issue specifically, I can tell you, you know, where, where people have taken action. Um, Cory Booker has introduced several times some sexual health education legislation. Uh, it's not in any way sort of uh, the same as the bill in New York State or some of the other state bills. It's not a mandate, um, but it, it is absolutely uh, would be a valuable bill. So he's introduced it several times. Um, and in fact, actually a number of other Democratic 
senators who are also presidential candidates are co-sponsors of that bill. So Senator Booker introduced it, uh, but Elizabeth Warren and Kristen Gillibrand are also co-sponsors. Um, so, you know, these are people who've taken action at the federal level in their jobs around sexual health education. Mayor Bill de Blasio has been an active opponent, in my opinion, of oh, a sex education would mandate. Would you look at that? Would you look at that? <laughs> he has neglected to implement his own task force's recommendations to issue a sex education mandate and has stymied our efforts at every turn, uh, which is why we've turned to the state legislature, which, you know, if you can't get it passed in New York City, but you can in New York State, I think says something significant about the leadership at that level. So he, certainly on sex education specifically, is not a strong candidate, in my opinion. Um, I, I don't know anything specific about the other candidates' positions on sex education. I haven't seen any commentary from them, although perhaps it's buried out there somewhere. Um, but even those who have, you know, it hasn't been made a priority. I think this is a common trend, like political trend with respect to sex education policy. People will introduce it, but rarely do they go to the mat. Rarely do they invest significant public airtime. Mm. Do they engage in like really, really rigorous public awareness campaigns? Do they really sacrifice or take a political risk to fight for it, even though I think it is possible that it could be passed, particularly if it's framed as a way of addressing rampant violence um, mm -hmm. against vulnerable people. So, you know, I don't think it's impossible, and I don't think that any of these legislators, legislators have done enough to advocate for it or champion it, but there are people who have taken some real steps, um, although in my opinion, not enough on the issue, uh, and those, again, are, are Senator Booker, Gillibrand, and Warren. So I know that you like Elizabeth Warren because I asked you before this interview who you liked. And you said Elizabeth Warren and no one else. And I really like for that. For president. For president, for president, let's be clear. Um, and I like that answer because I don't necessarily have an answer like mm -hmm. that yet. I really like Elizabeth Warren mm -hmm. and I love what she stands for. But why do you like her? That is a woman who has done, can I swear? Yes. That is a woman <laughs> who has done her goddamn homework. I, but, but I think that's serious. Like, it's a joke, but it's also, like, this is a person who knows how to think through complex policy issues. She knows how to talk to people all across the country and understand what is happening to them, what are the problems they want to see solved. I'm not paid for this, by oh, the way. Yeah. I, I simply care. This is just a lover easily. of Warren. I, I really am. Um, you know, she has really done her homework to understand what are the problems facing people, really thought carefully, like truly carefully, if you read the policy platforms, I mean, it is it is like a punchline at this point how comprehensive her policy platforms are, but they are careful, they are thorough, they are smart, they are realistic. Like this is a person who has thought about what this job requires and has a plan for getting it done. And I admire that. I don't know what else you would wanna see in a presidential candidate. Right. I also think she has done a lot of work in the last year, uh, several years to understand what like a national campaign strategy takes. She's become an excellent, excellent and engaging speaker you know, people say, yes, she has a professorial vibe. I just don't, people who say that, I don't think have seen her speak recently because she has done the work to figure out how to do a good job of that specific skill set, which is crucial to a presidential candidate. I think maybe less crucial to a, an acting president, um, but always valuable. 
And I think she's really worked on that in terms of her electability. My question about the elections is, you know, can like an AOC model work within the electoral college? I don't know. We've seen like fabulous, progressive, further left than, you know, quote unquote, the moderate Democrats would tend to vote for. Um, we've seen them topple institutionally backed big D, capital D Democrat um, candidates in here in New York in a number of races and all across the country in others. Uh, but we haven't tested that theory yet on the national stage in terms mm. of an election that is structured within the Electoral College. I think, in my opinion, we did sort of test it when we ran Hillary Clinton. You know, yeah, there was a candidate who failed to energize the young, more progressive voters who failed to energize the further left base and, in fact, really alienated a number of communities who might otherwise have been, and in prior successful presidential campaigns for progressive candidates, have been crucial voting blocks and crucial you know, grassroots organizing blocks and grassroots donor uh, support. You know, When you fail to mobilize those people, I think what you're seeing is that you lose. Right. I don't know that we're in a situation anymore where you know, the ticket is running a moderate, palatable, weak sauce, democratic candidate. I just, I, I don't see that working anymore. But what I don't know is how that plays out in an electoral college. And I haven't really seen much analysis of that like at a quantitative level, and I'd be interested to see it. I, I do not have the statistical skill set to, <laughs> uh -huh. to run those numbers, but... That's all right. You're going to be a lawyer, so you got you <laughs> a lot skill of other skills. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but I'd be really interested to see that. And, uh, but I actually, you know, I, I think she, Elizabeth Warren in particular, resonates across the political spectrum on a lot of issues, particularly economic justice issues. She has... She and other, you know, other candidates, certainly Bernie Sanders has played a role in this, certainly um, organizers working long, long before either of these two people were presidential candidates have really worked hard to embed economic justice analyses um, in uh, national politics for a long time. Uh, but I think you see that reflected in, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign and Elizabeth Warren's, and I think those issues resonate really broadly across, um, across many sort of shades of progressive or democratic. Um, I just think she's awesome. Did you know that one out of every three women identifying individuals have reported having painful sex within the last 90 days? There are so many reasons why people can experience this type of pain. And there's an incredible tool out there that can help. Meet Millie. Millie is a vaginal dilator for people with vaginas who have painful intercourse. Millie's single insertion, one millimeter at a time expansion puts the user in control. It can relieve physical pain from conditions like vaginismus, endometriosis, fibroids, cysts, IBS, surgery, chemotherapy, and emotional pain like anxiety, depression, and stress. Learn more about why so many women are choosing Millie at www.millimedical.com. Our creator, producer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our assistant producer is Kathy Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Alana Rance. Our sound engineer is Oliver Devone. Our fundraising co-coordinator is Jamie Cooper. And our other fundraising co-coordinator slash content assistant is Callie Cochran. Our music is by Ben Sound and Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured voices, sponsors, and our listeners. Tune in next time.